It's good to read it every week, but I have another purpose, which uh, it's kind of an obsession with mine, and even though I'm 89 years old, I still can't conquer it, try as I may, and uh, you know, years ago when all of our bulletins were printed on special paper that you ordered and they were... Uh, little heavier consistency than they are now. They made wonderful paper airplanes. But uh, today we do the best we can with what we have. And uh, so I appreciate the bulletin. First of all, it has wonderful information. But secondly, provides materials whereby I can exercise my passion. And uh, you know, you never know how it's going to turn out until you try it. And we're about ready to find out. Um, we never know. By the way, wasn't it great for Lynn to play the accordion? been many, many years since uh, we've had Lynn play the accordion for us, and so we're glad she didn't throw it away. How about that? It worked. <laughs> so there are more than one purposes for bulletins. Well, the theme this morning, our second Sunday of Advent, is love. And when we think of the incomparable event that we just celebrate, it's hard to think of a theme that's any more appropriate than the theme of love. You know, Scripture is just filled with passages that speak of God's love for mankind, special love for those who love Him, and then those who love Him, truly love Him, will live lives characterized by love. Love is a theme that's over and over and over again. In scripture, the Apostle John wrote a very appropriate statement in 1 John 1 8 The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Isn't that beautiful? And yet, we always have to be careful to include the caveat that love is not the full definition of God. For example, Scripture states that God is a God of wrath. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans 12.19, never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. And so the picture that we see our present day culture wanting to paint God as being this Benevolent being who just says, well, anything goes and practices inclusion, so to speak, doesn't at all fit the biblical picture. Certainly love is 
one of God's outstanding characteristics, probably the most definitive term if you have to come up with one. But we have to realize that's not the full description of God. That being true, this morning we're going to focus on that wonderful truth. The love of God, the love that God has for mankind made in his image, and how that love has been demonstrated by God from the very beginning. Have you ever pondered the question, why did God create heaven and earth on all that therein is? Why did God create humanity? <laughs> and you know, we can ponder that question, come various answers, and in all honesty, we have to say, to fully answer that question, we can't. Part of it, especially the sun, the moon, the stars, our answer would have to be speculative. But when it comes to mankind made in the image of God, Scripture presents over and over again the picture that God created us because he wanted to have in eternity a race of people, individuals made in his image with whom he can have fellowship. And that theme is over and over in the word. When Paul was addressing the Greek philosophers on the hill of Areopagus, he described God with these words. He himself gives to all life and breath and all things and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Isn't that an interesting description? God created humanity. He allowed humanity to expand, to, to expand into all of these nations. And he did so, so there would be a people in the earth who is groping and seeking, trying to find him because he wants to be found. Isn't that an astounding statement? We notice that John, or rather Genesis chapter 3, describes Yahweh, Jehovah God, as we would say in English, Yahweh walking in the garden and really seeking man. They heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid himself. Remember, this was after they sinned and they were afraid to face God. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Then Yahweh God called to man and said, Where are you? <laughs> in Leviticus, when Moses was giving instructions to the Israelites as to how they were to live and worship, here's the word of God that Yahweh gave. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Isn't that a statement, a beautiful statement? I will walk among you, you'll be my people. And then as Moses drew near 
to the end of his life, he gave a valedictory address. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is, really. It's Moses' valedictory address to the people of Israel before he died. And here's what he wrote. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. He must not see anything indecent among you, lest he turn away from you. God walks in your camp. So here we have a few of the many scriptures that describe the desire of God is to be in our midst for us to be in his presence and to have fellowship with us. And of course, the ultimate description is in the book of Revelation. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. You know, the word in this version, tabernacle, is the Greek word skene, which means tent. Notice that? God says, I will tent among you. I'm coming to your camp, and I'll put up my tent, and I'll dwell with you. So God made mankind in his image, and his motivation, primary motivation, seemed to be that he might have a group of individuals made in his image with whom he could fellowship throughout eternity. This morning, let's just take some time to go through the scriptural account of how God sought to bring that about. We've already seen the episode with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know the story that after they sinned, they were driven out of the garden, had to go out in the world and face all the vicissitudes that everyone experiences in this life. Recall they had two sons. First they had Cain. Cain seemed to be a very competent individual, self-sufficient, but yet very jealous. They had another son then named Abel. Abel seemed to be perhaps less self-confident than Cain. And you remember they brought their offerings to God and Abel's was accepted by God, but Cain's was. The book of Hebrews tells us that's because Abel came in faith. He came with a recognition of what he was doing. And Cain became angry and jealous and killed his brother. Can you imagine what Adam and Eve must have experienced when that happened? God had told them the day that they partook of this forbidden fruit, they would surely die. And so death entered the human race, but as yet no one had. This was the first time they had had a look at what death was like. Think of the grief they must have had, not only over the fact that they had a son who died, but a son who committed murder. The years passed by, many years. They had other sons and daughters, and finally they had a son named Seth. And Seth was a man who was like his father Adam. He's 
he had a relationship and sought a relationship with God. And he had a son named Enos. And, and uh, Genesis chapter 4 says, From that time on, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that was just the family of Seth. Cain and his descendants, however, had a totally different way to live. They were extremely accomplished. Cain's descendants built cities. They invented musical instruments. They invented metallurgy. <laughs> they made instruments out of metal. But they gave no thought to God. They were a proud, self-sufficient race. The descendants of Seth were sort of nobodies. <laughs> we don't read anything they accomplished at all. But they called upon God. In time, the descendants of Cain, as they multiplied, began to have sons and daughters. And their daughters were astonishing beautiful. Beautiful of face, beautiful of form. And in time, the men who were descendants of Seth began to be drawn by that sexual tantalization of the daughters of Cain. No longer was this question in their mind, what is God's will? But scripture tells us that every one of them took wives of whomever they desired. And so soon... No longer was there a godly race of Seth, but a commingle of the two clans that did not walk with God. More years passed by. So it came to the point where every thought and intent of man's heart was unto evil. And as God looked at these that he had made in his image, longing to have those with whom he could spend eternity, the whole race was turning away from him. Genesis tells us that it grieved God. King James says, repented, horrible translation, the word, Hebrew word, we've spoken of this before, is naham. Naham is onomatopoetic. Onomapoya is when a word sounds like what it means. It's a sigh. And it's not a sigh that you might utter after you've finished a task and whew, that's over. But it's a sigh that is accompanied by tears. God sighed with grief over these people with whom he wanted to spend eternity. And he said, I will blot out every man and every animal from the face of the earth, almost as saying, I give up.
But that's not what he did. There was a man named Noah. The King James says Noah found grace in the eyes of God. More other modern version says favor. Really, grace is best. The Hebrew word shin and the Greek word charis with which the Septuagint, the primary meaning of both of those words is grace. (laughs) And when someone receives grace from God, it's not because they deserve it. It is unmerited. And so why did God choose this man named Noah? Was it he had foreknowledge of him? You know, we could argue that all day and end up just speculating. But for reasons that existed in the heart of God, he extended grace to one man. And you know the story of the flood. And with that one man and his family, God started over. To move toward that final goal of having a race of individuals made in his image with whom he could spend eternity. The years went by. And again, as the descendants of Noah expanded and went to all corners of the earth, they began to worship idols. They began to look at the moon. They began to look at the mountains. They began to see lightning. And all of these they began to worship as gods. But not Yahweh. And so God once again prepared to start over. He chose a man named Abram. (laughs) And in time his wife Sarah. Abram became Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And when he chose him, he said, in the land of Canaan, said, walk all the way, north and south, walk east and west. Every place your foot touches, that's yours. But you can't have it right now. (laughs) Again, God's patience. Because he said, the people who dwell in this land at this time... Their cup of iniquity is not yet full. The centuries went by. And God then chose Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his family to be that special ones through whom he was going to bring about a people with whom he could spend eternity. You know the story of Joseph and Jacob's family and how they ended up in Egypt. And in Egypt, because they were shepherds and the Egyptians didn't like shepherds, they were given a special part of the land north, uh, east of Egypt, in Egypt, the land of Goshen, isolated much from the rest of the nation. And what had been a large family finally became a nation of hundreds of thousands, hundreds really, And then there was a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and began to enslave this group that God was working with to provide those with whom he had spent eternity. And you know the story of the deliverance from Egypt. They went out into the wilderness and there they began to encounter God 
in so many, many, many ways. The Lord's patience continued. Here's an interesting thing. God's first response is not anger. His first response is patience. You remember when Yahweh was working with Moses and trying to give, giving him really the commandments and all the laws. One time Moses said, just let me see you. <laughs> Yahweh said, no man can see me and live. But you do this. You go up on that mountain and you get inside of that particular cave. And even though I'm a spirit and no human eye can see me, I'll pass by and you can see my glory. <laughs> And so the glory of God passed by. And I want you to notice how God, how Yahweh described himself. This is his own self-description in Ephesians 34, say, or rather Exodus 34, 6. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. We find that description of God three times in the Psalms and other places as well. Paul wrote to the Romans, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Remember what Peter wrote, God is not willing that any should perish. That's, that's why he was delaying for the end of times. People said, oh, oh, surely by now, if he's really going to come, he would. Peter wrote, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's not slack concerning his promise as men are, but he's giving the human race time for more and more to come and repent. When the Israelites had started to become unfaithful to God, the Lord spoke these words through Ezekiel. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather the wicked turn from his way and live. So even though in the time of Noah, Every intent and thought of mankind was toward evil, and God started over, and God started over, and God started over and over and over, constantly moving toward that time when he would have a race of people with whom he could spend eternity. Sad to say, in time, the Israelitish men began to commit the same sinful flaw the descendants of Seth had done. You see, when God sent them into the land of Canaan, he said, Now the people that live there, their cup of iniquity is full. I want them obliterated from the earth. And the Israelites were to go in and kill every man, every woman, every child, and every piece of livestock they had. Get the land 
purge from these people. They only partially completed the task. And those that remained then became a source of temptation. And the beautiful daughters of these Canaanites, beautiful of faith and figure, the Israelite men began to be drawn to them, more and more intermarried with them, and brought not only these pagan wives into the nation, but their idolatry. And no longer was Yahweh the exclusive God, but they began to worship false gods. And so God made his next step to begin again. He allowed the Assyrians to come and carry away the ten northern tribes into captivity in Assyria. And then after a few years, he allowed Babylon to come in and take away the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, the only two tribes that really still showed any desire for Yahweh. But they still were plagued with idolatry. They were in Babylon for 70 years. They were purged of idolatry and never again, never again was idolatry that insidious sin that had so occupied God's people. Then you know what happened. <laughs> the pendulum moved the other way. They became terribly legalistic. They became just a people of the book without a true relationship with God. And so when Jesus Christ described them, he said this, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the precepts of men. And so God began again, celebrating what we have celebrated today. The second member of the Godhead, whom we now know as the Son, was sent into the world to redeem us and to bring about a people, people redeemed not by our own righteousness, but by the sacrifice of that Son upon the cross that heaven might be ours. Every time I think of the love of God, I <laughs> always that song that 50 years ago we started to hear comes to my mind. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair down bound with care, God gave his son to win. That child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. If we, with ink, the ocean fill, and where the sky a parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. 
nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God for you. God wants to spend eternity with you. Staggering thought, isn't it? And because of his love, he's made a way. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. I look to the day if heaven has streets <laughs> that I walk the streets of heaven with God and with you. Amen.